What a piece of work is a man. How noble in reason, how infinite in faculties, in form and moving, how express and admirable. In action, how like an angel. In apprehension, how like a god. The beauty of the world, the paragon of animals. They're the words of William Shakespeare placed on the lips of his tragic figure, Hamlet. The prince of Denmark, as he muses with his two friends, what a piece of work is a man. The greatest and most magnificent expression of the created realm. But do you know the story of Hamlet, perchance? The young prince discovers that his uncle has murdered his father, the king of Denmark, and in turn, his uncle has not only ascended to the throne, he has married Hamlet's mother. And in the process, a profound metamorphosis occurs in Hamlet's view of humanity, a metamorphosis that begins to poison his view of the entire race and eventually leads him to spurn the woman to whom he had pledged his love, Ophelia. Get thee to a nunnery. Why wouldst thou be a breeder of sinners? I am myself indifferent, honest, but yet I could accuse me of such things that, that it were better my mother had not borne me. I am very proud, revengeful, ambitious, with more offenses at my beck than I have thoughts to put them in, imagination to give them shape or time to act them in. What should such fellows as I do, crawling between earth and heaven? We are errant knaves all. Believe none of us. Go thy ways to a nunnery. Not merely marry someone else, Ophelia. Get thee to a nunnery, to a place where you will never be able to perpetuate this fallen human race. What are we to think about what Hamlet says concerning the human race? Are his original musings legitimate? What a piece of work is a man. Or are his subsequent sentiments indicative of a more accurate reality? Why would you be a breeder of sinners? If your assessment of the human race is informed by the full instruction of the Bible, then you will have to recognize that these two perspectives, though contradictory, are not mutually exclusive. In fact, they are contemporaneous. In that they both exist side by side in each one of us. Ours, therefore, friends, is an existence in contradiction. A humanity without integrity. As a biblically informed Christian, you should be able to say without hesitation tonight, what a piece of work is a man. Created to be a bearer of God's own image, a dignity not even said to be true of the angels. As originally designed, dear friends, the man and the woman were a creation of unimaginable possibilities and potentialities that would serve to reflect back to God the glories of his own image. And though this image has been marred to be sure, it still exists. Though darkened, not destroyed. And not just in the microbiologist who may one day discover the cure to cancer, but in the single woman down the street who has never managed to get married, living on welfare with four dirty-faced children. What a piece of work is a man. What a piece of work is a woman. But this isn't all the Bible tells us about humanity. 
While it is true that we have been made in the image of God himself, sadly, we are a people of great contradiction. You say, well, what do you mean? You've said that already now twice. Well, the Bible tells us, my friends, that an unholy intrusion has occurred. That in the whole of our being, we have been marred by a deeply rooted perversity. We who were once perfect have now become sinners through and through. Now, I understand that to say this, dear friends, puts me out of step with the prevailing notions of our culture. But to be mistaken at this point, you see, is to leave ourselves susceptible to the danger of a most serious kind. Failure to properly understand the extent of human fallenness inevitably results in a distorted understanding of divine grace. You say, now, wait a minute. Wait just a minute, Art. I thought this series was to be the start of something new. So great a salvation. I thought that was the theme. And it is. But everything about it presupposes a clear understanding of the answers to questions like these. From what are you saved? How far have you fallen? How can you really regard salvation as great until you accurately understand the true extent of your need? In other words, dear friends, your appreciation of the greatness of salvation is tied directly to your recognition of the extent of your need. Has your prayer been, dear God, if I'm to get into heaven, then you must give to me grace to compensate for what I lack? Or has your prayer been, dear God, if I'm to get into heaven, then every bit of it must be of your grace. Even the ability to recognize my need, let alone the provision you've supplied for me in Jesus Christ. In 1610, the followers of a Dutch seminary professor, James Arminius, drew up five novel articles of faith. The Arminians, as they eventually came to be called, insisted that the Belgic Confession of Faith and the Heidelberg Catechism, historic documents of the Protestant Church, were in need of change, particularly as they addressed issues related to the salvation of human beings. So a national synod, a national meeting was convened to examine the views of Arminius in the light of Scripture. Eighty-four members from five different countries met in 154 sessions over the course of seven months. Failing to reconcile the teachings of Arminius with the Word of God, they unanimously rejected each of these five articles of faith. What's more, five subsequent articles, five corresponding articles, they drew up so as to reaffirm the scriptural teaching regarding these important issues. Subsequently, they came to be known as the five points of Calvinism, though ironically, Calvin himself had been dead for well over 50 years. More helpfully then, and historically, they have been referred to as the doctrines of grace for the simple reason that they capture the essence of God's work in the salvation of human beings. Well, you see, Arminius's first line of attack against classic Christian orthodoxy was this. While human beings are certainly affected by the intrusion of sin, they have not been left hopeless. Human beings are not enslaved by sin. They still possess a will that is free to choose good over evil in spiritual matters. So, if a human being cooperates with the invitation of God's Spirit, he can be born again. 
to be sure. He needs assistance from the Spirit, but he doesn't need new life from the Spirit. Getting new life from the Spirit is the consequence of exercising saving faith, not the cause of exercising saving faith. Which means that faith at the end of the day is not to be understood as a gift from God to the sinner. It is to be understood as the sinner's gift to God. It is the sinner's contribution to salvation. Now, I am not going to bog you down with historical, unnecessary data each week. I promise you, friends. I mention it, however, this evening because this very thing has once again become the predominant view in American evangelical Christianity. People are sick. People are weary. People are struggling. People need help. But if they will simply choose God, he will supply all they need to make things better. No. Close but no cigar. No. No. It radically underestimates humanity's need and consequently diminishes God's provision, ultimately compromising the only message that can save our fallen human race. What I'm attempting to say tonight is this. The goodness of the good news is only appreciated when set against a full and proper understanding of the bad news. The goodness of the good news is only appreciated when set against a full and proper understanding of the good news. As Cornelius Plantinga has said, to mute the lethal reality of sin is to cut the nerve of the gospel. Now, in the 20th century, these five biblical responses to the novelties of Arminianism were formulated into an acrostic known as TULIP. T-U-L-I-P. But I want to tell you, friends, to be quite frank, to be honest, I don't like it. I don't like it. Not because the original responses to Arminianism was less than biblical. They were thoroughly biblical. But because those contemporary labels each reflect some measure of distortion, as labels are always inclined to do. The T, for example, in TULIP stands for what? Total depravity. You say, well, Art, don't you believe in total depravity? Of course I do. I have to. Norm Thiessen is my friend, right? <laughs> Total depravity. He, he's the embodiment of it, huh? And, and, and all silliness aside, I, I live with myself. But when I am asked, do you believe in total depravity? My standard response when I have my wits about myself is always something like this. It depends on how you define it. Total depravity does not mean that human beings have no sense of right or wrong. That an unbeliever has no conscience. The fact is the first two chapters of Romans teach the very opposite. Nor does total depravity mean that human beings are altogether devoid of any qualities that are pleasing or beneficial to society when judged by human standards. What does Jesus himself say? If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children? Moreover, total depravity is not utter depravity. No person is as wicked as it is as possible to be. Even Adolf Hitler didn't murder his mother. 
You see, this is my concern, that the phrase total depravity can inadvertently say more than the Bible itself says, which is something, friends, I never, ever, 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 ever want to do. That's why I hate labels. So I'm going to avoid those 20th century labels and, more importantly, seek to establish what is so plainly evident on the pages of the Scriptures. Why? Because the goodness of the good news is only appreciated when set against a full and proper understanding of the bad news. So tonight, allow me please to summarize the human dilemma, our dilemma, in three simple statements. First, sin has spread to every member of the human race. Sin has spread to every member of the human race. Apart from the sinless Son of God, Jesus Christ, sin has infected every person who has ever lived without exception. This is the human dilemma in its extensiveness, in its breadth. And dear friends, this is the burden, the clear burden of the Apostle Paul in the early chapters of the book of Romans. In chapter 1, verses 1 to 17, we have Paul's introduction and the statement of his theme. Notice verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul is saying the righteous God has revealed his righteousness in the provision of a universal salvation for everyone who believes, Jew and Gentile. And why is this something from which Paul will not shrink back in shame? Because this gospel uniquely answers a universal dilemma. The dilemma of human guilt of which no person is exempt. So, beginning in verse 18 of chapter 1 through chapter uh, through verse 32. Chapter 1 verse 18 through verse 32. Paul levels his accusation against the Gentiles. They have had the revelation of the created order. We saw that a few weeks ago in Psalm 19. They have had the revelation of conscience. And yet a simple evaluation of their lives would lead to one irrefutable conclusion. Not righteous. Then in chapter 2 verse 1 through chapter 3 verse 8, Paul turns his attention now to the Jews. Who, of course, had the revelation of creation and had the effects of conscience to, to, to come to terms with. But beyond all of that, they've experienced some extraordinary benefits. They have been the recipients of God's very revelation in the law. The problem is they couldn't keep the law well enough to please this righteous God who at the end of the day is satisfied with nothing less than perfection. God doesn't grade on a curve. So rather than providing a means of salvation, this law has revealed their susceptibilities to condemnation. Which in turn serves to bring Paul's argument now to its logical conclusion in verse 9 of chapter 3. What then? Are we Jews any better off, that is any better off than the Gentiles? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. His accusation is comprehensive, isn't it? 
Jews and Gentiles, both, all are under sin. In other words, this depravity, as it were, is universal. It's comprehensive. It spreads to everyone. No one ever escapes it. And as if his own inspired words were not enough, Paul says now, in effect, let me make clear to you that I have God on my side. Because our, after all, our theology is only as sound as the extent to which it rightly reflects God's revelation. Look at what he does now. He quotes over and over again the Old Testament. And listen now to the universal language. None is righteous. No, not one. Now that's what we call the universal negative. It's as though Paul expects us to protest to his first statement, none is righteous, and he expects to say, well, you don't know my grandmother. I mean, after all, she really is a... Paul says, no, 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 not one. And if that isn't emphatic enough, verse 11, no one understands. No one seeks for God, what does that mean that about a church that builds itself on being open to seekers? It tells you that the people that get in their front door will not be there for God because nobody seeks God. They'll be there for something else. That's why the gospel gets lost in those kinds of places, you see? No one understands. No one seeks for God. Do, do you hear the universal language? No one, no one. Notice verse 12. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Now this, dear friends, is a description of the human dilemma. That the corruption of the human race is universal. And if you would allow me to say this a bit tongue-in-cheek, hmm, with a wink and a smile, but there is truth to it, this is not reform theology. This is not Calvinism. This is not Augustinianism. This is... Pauline, and Paul is quoting scripture, which, last time I checked, was the word of God. You need a bit more support? In 2 Chronicles 6, King Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, says, There is no one who does not sin. The psalmist asks of the Lord, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? David says to the Lord in Psalm 143, No one living is righteous before you. Proverbs poses to us a question, who can say, I have made my heart pure, I am clean from my sin? The book of Ecclesiastes adds, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does right and never sins. Isaiah says, all we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way. And a few chapters later, Isaiah adds, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous acts are like a polluted Garment, my dear friends, I mean, you've got to work hard to get yourself around this. God is crystal clear about the universality of human sin. In fact, to argue this point with all due respect is the height of futility. First John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sin, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. The dilemma of the human race is that the corruption of sin is universal. 
In fact, Paul's concluding argument is decisive. I mean, it seals the deal. Verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, notice whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. He's talking to Jewish people about their own law. And what he's saying, you see, is my Jewish brothers and sisters, you must not think that you are exempt from this guilty standing before God. The citations I've quoted come from your law, and they speak about you. But here is the point. In condemning you, the entirety of humanity stands condemned. We know that whatever the law speaks, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. You see, friends, it is an argument from the greater to the lesser. If the Jews, God's chosen people and the recipients of innumerable blessings from God, cannot escape the reach of sins, stain and guilt, then it surely follows that the Gentiles who have no prior claim on God's favor, must also be equally guilty. That's why he says what he does in verse 9, For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Here, beloved, is the dilemma that we collectively share. Sin is spread to every member of the human race. Notice verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin is spread to every member of the human race. Secondly, sin has infected every facet of your humanity. Sin has infected every facet of your humanity. There is not a piece of your being, dear friends, that is left untouched by the presence and power of sin. There is no little teeny remote island of neutrality. So that the human dilemma is not only defined by its extensiveness, that it encompasses every person, it is defined by its intensiveness, that it reaches into every single part of who you are. Notice again what Paul says in verse 11. No one understands, speaking of the mind. No one seeks for God, speaking of the will. All have turned aside. No one does good. Speaking of the heart out of which the actions flow. And then to illustrate this sin, Paul then talks about some specific sins, sins that in particular relate to the realm of communication. Verse 13, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Throats, tongues... Lips, mouths, and don't forget that he's already mentioned mind, heart, will. Notice that this sin expresses itself in violence. Verse 15. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. He mentions the feet. And the essential expression of their sinful condition. Verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Mind, will, heart, 
throat, tongue, lips, mouth, feet, eyes. Now, of course, Paul is speaking metaphorically here as he makes mention of the various components of our humanity. And yet, dear friends, you can't help but recognize what Paul is intending to show us. That sin has affected the totality of who you are as a human being. You say, well, what about the rest of the Bible? I mean, you know, Paul just seems like an angry guy to me. Do we get a better picture elsewhere in the Bible? No. The rest of the Bible is equally consistent. Sin has affected the human heart. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah 17. Sin has affected the human mind. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. They became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened hearts, minds. Titus says of people who are not Christians, their minds and their consciences are defiled. Mind, heart, conscience. Sin has affected the emotions. You know that? Jesus says of unbelievers, the light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light. Everyone who does evil hates the light. Those are terms that speak of human emotions. They're distorted. In fact, do you realize that sin has affected your entire body? The entire human body has been stained by sin. You say, how do you know that? Well, because according to Romans chapter 5, the greatest proof of a person's sinnerhood is that he dies physically. The soul who sins will die. The wages of sin is death. My dear friends, there is not a sliver of your humanity that has been kept free from the infection of sin. This corruption is pervasive. It is thorough. Heart, mind, conscience, emotions, body. So that the New English Bible translates Psalm 53 like this. God looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if any act wisely, if any seek out God, but all are unfaithful, all are rotten to the core. He's not saying that any of us are as bad as we could be. He is saying... in the innermost place, whatever you want to call that. The core, the root of who we are. There is corruption. That's why some people have actually labeled this radical depravity because the term radical literally means root. The human dilemma that belongs to each of us, to all of us, beloved, is this. Sin is spread to every member of the human race. Sin has affected every facet of your humanity. Finally, sin has rendered you unable to respond to God in a positive fashion. Sin has rendered you unable to respond to God in a positive fashion. Look at Romans 3. Now, we have seen the scope of Paul's accusation both Jews and Gentiles, all people without exception. We've seen the source of Paul's accusation. This isn't my own imagination, as it is written. This is the revelation of God, Paul says. But now, now you must not miss the substance 
of this accusation. What is he really, truly saying about us? Notice. For we have already charged, verse 9, that all both Jews and Greeks are, watch now, under sin. He's not simply saying that all people without exception are sin-stained, sinful. He is not saying that all of us are in sin. Paul chooses his prepositions very carefully, with great precision. He is saying that we are under sin. That is, under the domination of sin. In fact, if you know the book of Romans, you'll know that very often Paul personifies sin as a tyrant that abusively exercises its rule over people. That people are enslaved to the lordship of sin and they can do nothing to extricate themselves from its bondage. We saw this on Sunday morning, right? In Revelation chapter 1 verse 5. Now to him who loves us and has what? Freed us. What does that imply? Bondage. Enslavement. It's what Paul is saying here. Apart from the liberating power of the gospel, every person lives under the domination of sin. That means sin controls. Sin masters. Sin dominates. Sin, my dear friends, is not merely a transgression you commit against the law of God. It is a condition to which your life is bound. You sin... Because you cannot not sin. And at this point, don't get upset with Paul. Because he's simply expounding Jesus. Who says in John chapter 8, everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. And there's nothing you can do to free yourself from this condition. Can an Ethiopian change his skin? Can a leopard change his spots? Well, if they can, then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. Jesus says it proverbially. A bad tree cannot bear good fruit. And my dear friends, in our consideration of the human dilemma, this without question is the single most devastating thing of all. Not merely that a person will not come to God, or that a person may not come to God. The dilemma of humanity is that a person, if left unaided by grace, cannot come to God. When I was in the second grade, I think every... Boy loves his second grade teacher. And for me, it was Mrs. Quaresma. I loved Mrs. Quaresma. In fact, when my mother came to have one of those parent-teacher things, you know, in the, early on in the fall, Mrs. Quaresma said, well, Art's doing fine, and uh, he talks a little too much, but he's doing okay in his studies. Just one little problem. My mom said, what is it? She said, every time I walk by his seat in class, he pats me on my bottom. I loved Mrs. Quaresma. We did that at home. I thought it was fine. I thought you do that to everybody. And so my mom had a little talk with me. But I, I say that to say, um, 
I remember one time coming up to Mrs. Korishma and saying to her, um, can I go to the bathroom? And she said to me, I don't know, can you? Can I go to the bathroom? I don't know, can you? She was giving me a grammar lesson. I was using bad grammar. Ironically, I have students here in graduate school who talk the same way. <laughs> can I go to the bathroom? What I'm asking is, do I have the ability to go to the bathroom? No, the proper question is, may I go to the bathroom? I don't need the ability to go. I need permission to go. And over and over in the Bible, we come across repeated cannots, not may nots. Unless one is born again, Unless something happens to someone outside of himself, he cannot see, let alone choose, the kingdom of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, For the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he cannot understand them. Paul says in Romans 8, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Why do we try and make believers act like unbelievers? You need to keep that in mind the next time you step into the voting booth. You can't make an unbeliever act like a believer. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And how about this one, in case that isn't enough? John 6, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. He doesn't say no one may come. People don't have the permission to come unless we grant them. No one can come. They don't possess the inherent ability to come. Now, friends, have you pulled all of this together? It tells you a lot. A sinful human being cannot see. He cannot understand. He cannot hear. He cannot please. And if left to himself, he cannot come to Jesus Christ for the gift of eternal life. Where spiritual issues are in view, this means absolute inability. You've heard me use this illustration before, some of you. You know that shortly after Lori and I were married, we lived in a mortuary for nine months. So I know a little something about dead bodies, huh? I've moved them, I've transported them, I've touched them, I've cared for them. I know something about dead bodies. And if you were to take a needle and prick the big toe of a corpse, what could you expect? You say, well, Art, don't be an idiot. We would expect no response. Why? Because the corpse no longer possesses the capacity to respond to physical stimulation. It's the definition of being dead. Can't respond to physical stimulation. Not in any way. What if I prick it three times? What if I prick it really fast? What if I prick it really hard? What if I dim the lights and put on nice soft Chris Tomlin music and tell that corpse really wonderful stories and... Prick it five times really hot. Dead. No capacity to respond to physical stimulation. In the same manner, you understand, my dear friends, if we lovingly and compassionately prick the heart and mind of an unbeliever with the needle of the gospel, 
We need to understand that until God's grace grants life, such a person has no capacity to respond to spiritual stimulation. And so the Apostle Paul says it like this. Maybe the most comprehensive thing you need to understand about the fallen human race in the Bible. And you were dead. Not sick. Not almost dead. Not really bad off. You were dead in trespasses and sins. No ability to respond to spiritual stimulation. This is what the Bible says about the human dilemma. This is the doctrine of human fallenness. Sin has spread to every member of the human race. Sin has infected every facet of your humanity. And sin has rendered you unable to respond to God in a positive fashion. You know what that means? Our existence is an existence in contradiction. Your children possess an existence in contradiction. We are image bearers of the living God who at the same time are controlled by a deep-seated perversity. In every single facet of our being, in every nook and cranny of who we are, we are guilty and we can do nothing in ourselves to change our condition before God. Now, my dear friends, some of you have been coming on Wednesday nights for months and you've come on 